If you don't have one, there's one provided in the pew. It's the red, well, red, redder <laughs> book there. <laughs> and turn with me to uh, Genesis chapter 28. We're actually going to be looking at a large section of scripture today, uh, starting at 27 verse 41 all the way through 29 verse 30. We're going to be looking at Jacob's, a big swath of Jacob's life. In his book, Finishing Strong, Steve Farrar sums up the price of sin this way. And this will serve as our uh, outline today. He describes the price of sin this way. Sin will take you farther than you want to go keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you're willing to pay. So sin, the price of sin, sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you're willing to pay. That is what sin extracts. And this is certainly true in Jacob's life. In the next chapter and a half that we're going to be looking at, we begin to see the fallout of Jacob's lying and deceitful behavior. And we see that sin comes to roost, comes back to roost in his life by separating him from his family, by keeping him longer with his uncle Laban than he wanted to stay. All the while, that whole years and years of his life, the shadow of the threat of death was hanging over his head. Look, look with me, starting in verse 41 of chapter 27. We pick up the reading there where we left off last week, right after he stole the blessing from Esau. And it says, God's word says, Now Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, The days of my mourning for my father are approaching. Then I will kill my brother. But the words of Esau, her older son, were told to Rebekah. So she sent and called Jacob, her younger son, and said to him, Behold, your brother Esau comforts himself about you by planning to kill you. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice. Arise, flee to Laban, my brother, and Haran, and stay with him a while until your brother's fury turns away. And so your brother's anger turns away from you, and he forgets what you have done to him. Then I will send and bring you from there. Why should I be bereft of you both in one day? Then Rebekah said to Isaac, I loathe my wife because of the Hittite women. If Jacob marries one of the Hittite women like these, one of the women of this land, what good will my life be to me? Then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and directed him. You must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. Arise and go to Paddan Aram, to the house of Bethuel, the mother, your mother's father, and take as your wife one from there, one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you, that you become a company of peoples. May he give the blessing of Abraham to you and your offspring with you that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. Thus Isaac sent Jacob away, 
He went to Paddan Aram, to Laban, the son of Bethuel, the Aramean, the brother of Rebekah, Jacob, and Esau's mother. I'm going to pause there. Scripture is exceedingly clear. In Galatians 7, we read, Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. Man reaps what he sows. I think Paul was thinking of, of what Hosea wrote years earlier when he wrote, You sow the wind, you reap the whirlwind. That is Scripture's law of gravity, brothers and sisters, when it comes to sin. It is incontrovertible. Sin always has consequences. Sin always has consequences. The Bible puts these consequences in at least three categories. That of separation, that of bondage, and that of death. In other words, sin separates you from the ones who love you. Sin separates you from the one who loves you, God. Sin enslaves you. Whether you know it or not, whether you feel it or not, sin actually is bondage, and we'll look at that. And sin eventually and inevitably kills you. It leads to death, spiritual death, eternal separation from God, eternal separation from God. We call that euphemistically or colloquially hell, when you're eternally separated from God. That is the Bible's arc on the grand scale where sin is concerned. And that is what we see reproduced in Jacob's life, the consequences of these sins over and over again. Like Jacob right here in this chapter. First we see that sin takes you farther than you want to go. Sin takes you farther than you want to go. It causes separation. I don't think... And I don't read J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings as an allegory. I don't see it as an allegory, but certainly his deep Christian convictions had a, had a deep impact on the writing of it. We see clearly that he has the arc of good versus evil in there. He wrote of the evil forces led by Sauron, taking over Middle Earth, making the connection for us even, even tighter. We're introduced to a wizard named Gandalf, and what does he do? He is preparing the way for the returning king, Aragorn. And when Aragorn comes, he restores the land back to the beauty and peace and hope that it was originally created with. And he wrote about ordinary people, like Frodo and Sam, like you and me who play a role, actually play a role in bringing God's kingdom to earth. And we also see, through the, through the character of Gollum, how sin warps and deforms us, don't we? It changes Gollum slowly from who he was originally into this emaciated, disgusting-looking creature causes a deep separation to happen. And you see this in the second book at the beginning when, when it tells the background of Smeagol. 
who turns into Gollum and how he is obsessed and the evil overtakes him of the ring and he begins to change. Do you remember that part? He begins to change. He's so focused and so overtaken by the evil of the ring that he actually begins to change. And he changes physically, but he also, at the very end of that section, you see him who, who has become this emaciated, distorted being. Where does he want to go? He wants to separate himself from the world. And you see him climbing into a cave underneath the mountains where he lives separate for the rest of his life. Tolkien is showing the spiritual reality that sin separates you. It separates you. There's a separation. And we see that here in Jacob being forced to leave his family because of his deception and lies. Rebecca learns of Esau's plan to kill him. And, he, and she, if you notice, once again deceives her husband, right? She tricks her husband. She doesn't come to him and say, listen, here's this plan and we've got to protect Jacob. She tricks him into saying, again, a good thing. I don't want my son to marry out of the faith. So let's send him away. Like you, Isaac. This must have been very appealing to him, right? This is how he got his wife. So let's send Jacob away to find a wife. And she deceives him under the guise of finding a faithful woman. So Jacob is forced to leave everything he had known. Just think about that for a second. You know, we travel a lot these days, great distances. They didn't. And he's forced to leave. And, he, and, and notice nobody goes with him. He's, he's not given a servant to go with him. He's forced to leave alone. And think of Jacob growing up in that home, that huge family, that well-to-do family. He had everything he wanted at that time. He had the relationships of the family, and then all of a sudden he's ripped out of it, and he's alone. And we find out a little later on that he's, he's so alone that he doesn't even have a pillow, right? He uses a rock, and he's sleeping out under the stars all alone. Here we're witnessing the consequences of his sin, that separation. That separation that Isaiah talked about when he was speaking to the Israelites in chapter 59. He wrote to the Israelites, Surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save, nor his ear too dull to hear, but your iniquities have separated you from God. What Isaiah is explaining to the Israelites is that it's not God who has pulled away. It's, it's your sin that has, has put a partition, a separation between you and God. They're, feeling, they're not feeling the presence of God because of their sin. And that's one of the consequences of sin in our lives. It separates you from God. That's what we see so vividly in the beginning of Genesis in the garden narrative, right? The Garden of Eden. That, that severe separation from God because of sin. You know, at one moment, Adam and Eve are in, and the next, because of sin, the consequences of sin, they're out, they're separated from the presence of God. They were once in a relationship with God, sin enters the picture, and what happens? They're out of relationship with God. Nicky Gumbel of Alpha describes the effects of sin in four ways. He says sin has power, sin pollutes, there's a penalty to sin. And then his fourth one, he says there's a partition of sin. 
there's a partition that happens. Sin actually cuts us off from the loving God. And that is what Jesus came to restore with his life, death, and resurrection. That relationship, that separation, he came to bring us back into relationship, into communion with him. To offer a way back into relationship to, for the one person that cares for you more than anybody else. Do you realize that, brothers and sisters? That, that God cares for you more than anyone else. Do you, do you think about that? That he has you on his mind all the time. You know when you're, you're in love with somebody, when you go through that phase of infatuation, you just can't stop thinking about them. You know, that's the challenge of, of being married a long time. You want to, to have that person in the front and forefront of your mind and not partition them away. When you love somebody, you're thinking about them. You're caring about them. God is like that every second of every day. Your name is on his mind. Secondly, in Jacob's life, we see that sin keeps you longer than you want to stay. Sin actually puts you in bondage. We see this bondage in Jacob's life is at the hands of his uncle Laban. Look with me at Genesis 29, starting in verse 15. Jacob has been forced to separate himself from his family, from the ones who love him. And he's fled about 500, 600 miles to the northeast from Beersheba to Haran, a safe distance in those days from the hands of his brother. And he's found his uncle Laban, and he's been staying with him about a month, at which point Uncle Laban says this, look, starting in verse 15. Because you are my kinsman, Jacob, should you not therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me what your wages will be. Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel. And he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it is better that I give her to you than I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife that I may go in to her, for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, what is this you have done to me? Did I not serve you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Laban said, It is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one, and we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. Jacob did so and completed her week. Then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his female servant Billah 
to his daughter Rachel to be her servant. So Jacob went in to Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah, and served Laban for another seven years. Here we see the bondage in Jacob's life is at the hands of his uncle. Jacob has been separated himself, and here we see that the deceiver is deceived himself, right? The great deceiver, Jacob, is deceived by his uncle Laban. Jacob agreed to work seven years for Rachel, the one he loved. Just pause and think of that for a second. Seven years he was willing to give up. And then, after the 2,555 days are over, on the wedding night, Laban tricks him, sends Leah in. In the morning, Jacob realizes this, and it's too late. Laban knows he can get seven more years out of this guy. Seven more years of free labor. So he indentures Jacob another seven to get whom he loved, which is Rachel. He ends up staying with Laban a total of 14 plus years. We don't know how many extra years there. But what we see here is sin keeps you longer than you want to stay. That's the consequences of sin. Sin is always Bondage. Sin is always bondage. In 2006, the Associated Press ran a story about a 21-year-old man who had been taken to the hospital for injuries because he was trapped waist-deep in a vat of chocolate. The man was an employee of Develis Corporation, a company that supplies chocolate ingredients, In the police report, it said that he stepped into the molten chocolate to turn off the machine. Once once he was in the chocolate, he became inextricably stuck. This might not seem so bad to some, but when the police and firefighters arrived on the scene, even they couldn't pull him out. They had to thin the chocolate down in order to, to extract him. Now, I tell you that story to give us a picture of what sin, how sin enslaves us. How dangerous does chocolate seem? I'm sure the man thought, I'll just go down a couple steps and turn off the machine. It's some people's favorite thing. I was uh, playing games and, and with uh, a couple friends and, and, and my daughter had friends over and the parents began to pick up the kids and one of the women, I, we were there and the mother came in and we chatted her up and, and we started talking about what your favorite dessert is and she said chocolate. And I said, what kind of chocolate? She said, any kind of chocolate. I said, bitter chocolate? Like, really? She said, it's chocolate. Milk chocolate? Love it. White chocolate? Oh, she loves it. She loved chocolate. You see, sin never, ever comes at you with something that looks bad. It never does. Sin never comes with a warning label. Sin never tells you what terrible price you will pay. In fact, sin comes and actually promises us things we want, doesn't it? It makes us promises. It never delivers on the promises, but it makes us tons of promises. Where money is concerned, where reputation is concerned. 
It promises satisfaction, but delivers pain. It promises purpose. In the end, it's meaninglessness. It promises freedom and independence. And in the end, it's slavery and bondage. In Italy, there's a set of four statues by Michelangelo that were originally intended for the tomb of Pope Julius. But midway through the project, Michelangelo abandoned them. So they're works in, in status, so to speak. And these are colloquial, colloquially called the captives. There's a hand protruding here. You can see one on the overhead. There's a torso, a man's leg, part of a head, but none finished. Michelangelo was such a great talent that though they're incomplete hunks of stone, I don't know about you, but I was struck by their lifelike struggle to get out of the marble. The crying to break free from the prison that they're in, that sense of captivity that, that when I was looking at them, that's, that's how I felt when I was thinking about sin and how it, is, it bonds us, it, it bonds to us, it enslaves us. This is in a way a picture of what sin does to us. Before Christ enters our life, we are actually like that in bondage. That's what Jesus said in John 8:34, didn't he? I tell you the truth, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. That's what he said. Over and over again the scriptures tell us that we're actually a lot like Michelangelo's sculpture. Trapped in a struggle, in bondage to sin. Hebrews 12 tells us that we are entangled by it. We keep looking at the chocolate pool and saying, how bad can that be? But really, when we start to go down into it, we're inextricably enslaved by it. Paul explains this bondage like this in Romans 7. I'm sold as a slave to sin. I don't understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, that's what I do. There's the bondage of sin right there. There's the bondage of sin in, in the believer's life. It, it, we're, not, we're not chained by it anymore, but our appetite for it is still there, isn't it? Our appetite for sin is still there. We're not going to pay the consequences as a believer for the sin, but our appetite is still there. And so it wars against us, doesn't it? Anybody here understand and feel that tension of Romans 7? My goodness. I want to do good, but I, but I don't. And that which I hate, I do. We are like Duke Reynold III. As Christians, we're like Duke Reynold III. Do you know who Duke Reynold III is? Neither did I before this week. He was a 14th century Duke in Belgium. He was grossly overweight. Reynold was called by the Latin name Crassus, which means fat. After a violent argument with his brother, Edward, Edward led a revolt against Reynold. Edward captured him, but didn't kill him. Instead, he built a room around Reynold in Newkirk Castle and promised Reynold that if he could get out of this room, 
he could return to his throne. This would not have been difficult for most people because the room was of normal size, windows were of normal size, doorway was of pretty normal size. But he was so obese that he could not fit through any of those. The problem was that to regain his freedom, Reynold would have to lose weight. So what did Edward do? Every day, his brother Edward would send in delicious foods, a steady stream of delicious foods. And do you think Reynold was ever able to leave that room? No, he even got fatter. He was imprisoned by his own appetite. That's a good picture of the bondage or the desire we have for sin after we come to Christ, isn't it? It's not, it's not that we're going to pay the penalty of our sin anymore. The curse is broken, but our appetite is still there. We still, we still have that war, that Romans 7 war going on in our mind and heart, don't we? And you become a prisoner by your own appetite. Sin can keep you longer than you want to stay until you finally reach the end, and that's the last price you pay for sin, that is death. Sin takes you farther than you want to go, keeps you longer than you want to stay, and finally costs you more than you're willing to pay. And that is the shadow that is cast over this whole narrative, isn't it? That's the shadow that, that has influenced Jacob's whole life. The threat of death. Look back at chapter 27, verse 41. Esau was going to kill his brother. That's the whole reason Jacob had to flee in the first place. Esau found out that Jacob had stolen his blessing. He planned to kill him. And this death threat casts a shadow over Jacob's life clear to chapter 33. The fear of death casts a shadow over a good portion of Jacob's life. And that same shadow stretches over our lives too. Death is always at the back of our mind. I mean, think about it. Why do we have time? Because there's an end. Why is eternity eternity? Because there's no end. That's the consequence of our father Adam disobeying God in the, in the garden. That you will surely die, right? Genesis 3. If you disobey me, if you eat, you will surely die. That is the consequence. Our New Testament words it a little differently. In Romans 6, it says, The wages of your sin, how you get paid for your sin, is that you die. The wages of sin is death. Now, some might, seem that, might think that this is pretty arbitrary, or controlling of God, an overreaction, death for disobedience, one disobedience, death for wanting to do things our way, death penalty. Consider a deep sea diver who is who's tethered to the surface by an air hose. He feels kind of restricted in his movements, he wants to go places, but he can't go places that he wants to go. And so, what does he do? He cuts the line. 
He cuts his own air hose to go somewhere he wants to go. The cost of that freedom, the cost of doing that underwater activity his way is death. There's a little air left in the hose, so he lives for a a few minutes, but eventually the air runs out. This is a good picture of our lives before Christ. Our lives before Christ. Scripture tells us that because of Adam's sin, we're all born sinful. Psalm 51.1 says, 51.5 says we're conceived in sin. Isaiah 53 says we've all gone astray. Scripture tells us the penalty of sin is death. And that we are all destined to die and then face the judgment. That's Hebrews 9.27. In other words, to extend the metaphor, we're free to move about the ocean floor, but we only have so much air in our hose. And when that air runs out, we die. The wonderful thing about our God is he, he doesn't leave us there. He does not leave us there. He made a way to reconnect our air hose. He provided a way back to the surface, a way back into relationship with him. Look with me at chapter 28, verse 10. Here Jacob has has left, and he's about three days out of his journey. And God's word says, Jacob left Beersheba and went towards Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of that place, he put it under his head and lay down on that place to sleep. And he dreamed. And behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached the heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you, all your offspring and your families of the earth will be blessed. Behold, I am with you, and I will keep you wherever you go, and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done that which I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. We see here that Jacob's life and the sin consequences has taken him further than he wanted to go, separated him, kept him longer than he wanted to stay. In bondage cost him more than he was willing to pay, that death sentence, yet God provides a place of grace, Bethel. So here is Jacob, liar, deceiver, thief, feeling the consequences of his sin, sleeping alone in the night, exposed, scared, extending the metaphor again on the floor of the ocean with his air hose cut off, and God comes to him. God initiates a relationship with him. That's how it is in salvation. 
That's how it is in biblical salvation. God comes to us. God comes to you. God initiates. That's what separates Christianity from all other religions. All other religions, this ladder, as we'll see, goes up and we're supposed to climb it. We're going to see that this ladder actually is a ladder down. Most commentators say that the, the word ladder is, is not helpful here. Probably what Jacob dreamed about was one of those Mesopotamian ziggurats, those temples that go up like the Mayan temples in the, in the West here. They have those steps, those big steps that go up. Not like the pyramids in Egypt, not smooth, but they go up by steps like this. Those steps were about 10 to 20 feet high each. In other words, those steps were God-sized so that God could come down to man. In other words, Jacob would not have seen, it, seen that, that vision as his way to heaven, but as God being able to come down to him. In biblical Christianity, man never works his way to God. Never. You cannot be moral enough to work your way to God. You cannot be philanthropical enough to work your way to God. You cannot live good enough to work your way to God. You can never climb up to God. The steps are too big. You're at the bottom of the ocean with your air hose cut off. No hope of getting to the surface. But God graciously comes to us. That's why, personally, I like the alternate reading in verse 13 where it says, Behold, the Lord stood above it. Most of your Bibles have a note that says, Beside him. The Lord stood beside Jacob. And that's what we see in Jesus. Jesus comes to us. Galatians 4.4 4 says, When the time had fully gone, come, God sent his son, born of a woman. That's what John 3.16 is conveying, that famous verse. God so loved the world that he gave his son. His son came. He sent his son. That's what the beauty is of the beginning of John's gospel. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And then in verse 14 explains it. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. It's all about God coming to us. That's what the gospel is all about. If you're here today and you don't consider yourself a Christian, first of all, I am thrilled that you're here. And I, and I encourage you to come down and, and have a wonderful lunch with us. But secondly, I want you to know that you're not here by accident. You're not here because of some coincidence. You're not even here because you wanted to be here. You're here because God wants to meet with you. You're here because God wants to initiate a relationship with you. Right here. This, if you will, is the bottom of Jacob's ladder for you. God wants to come into your life. He wants to reconnect 
your life air hose. He wants to reconnect in a deep, abiding, real relationship with you. And that's only done through Jesus Christ. Jesus said late in his ministry in John 14, 6, he said to the crowds, I want to make this exceedingly clear. I am the way. And I see him pointing to his body. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. I am the reconnection with God. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is the way to life. And and Jesus says, if you will believe in me, you will have life. And all that simply means is that you, you confess your inability. You confess that you can't be good enough. You confess. You say, I can't do it, God. I need you to do it for me. And that's what Jesus did in his life. He lived the perfect life. Do you know why living the perfect life, sinless life is important? Because he earns heaven. Jesus is the only person that ever lived that earned heaven. And he earned heaven. And instead of just taking it and walking away, he said, you know what? I'm going to make this ticket available for everybody. Everybody who believes that they can't do it and that I did. And so for our part, it's just responding to that. Realizing that Jesus did live the life that we can never live, but also he paid the debt that we deserved. That's the great transaction of the cross of Jesus Christ. He takes his perfection and gives it to us. And he takes our ugliness, our sin, and our penalty for sin, which is death, and he says, I'll do it. I will die. I will die for Blake. Fill in your own name. And that's why he went to the cross. To take God's full wrath for sin. And that was meted out on him that day. That's why he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's what was so painful for him. He died in our place. But praise God, we we live, we worship a God who did not stay dead. He rose again from the dead three days later and said, I am the resurrection and life. If you believe in me, you will, though you die, though you physically die, yet you will live. That's the eternal life. He reconnects your air hose. And you live eternally with and in relationship with the lover, the person who loves you the most. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for your wonderful word that displays your wonderful son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.